Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Kenneth Bartlett for a conversation about the Italian Renaissance. Dr. Bartlett is Professor of History and Renaissance Studies at Victoria College, University of Toronto, based in Canada. He has written many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. The first one, The Renaissance in Italy, A History, which was published by Hackett Publishing Company. And the second one, A Short History of the Italian Renaissance, which was published by University of Toronto Press. Welcome to the show, Ken. My pleasure to be here, Andrew. So what was the Italian Renaissance? Well, that's a big question, but a short answer is that it's the recovery of the ideas and the models, uh, the practices of classical antiquity, that is ancient Rome, and then later ancient Greece, and those lessons apply to the issues of the Italian um, peninsula, um, beginning in the middle of the 14th century and lasting really until late into the uh, into the 16th. But it really is a recovery of antiquity and all the values and principles that antiquity uh, um, provided for future generations, including some of the elements that still animate us today, like the creation of the individual autonomous self, um, the idea of uh, realism in, uh, in art, uh, reproducing what the eye sees, literature reflecting the human experience of people on earth, and the value of that experience as something good in itself, rather than merely being a preface to your preparation for the next world. Was the term Renaissance used at all by contemporaries during that period of time? In, indeed it was. In some ways, the Italian Renaissance was one of the first self-conscious historical periods because there was a sense of rebirth, because that's what Renaissance means, uh, that sense of rebirth of antiquity and the recovery and ultimately the surpassing of all of the achievements of the ancient world. So if you look at um, Giorgio Vasari, for example, who kind of invented art history in his lives of the, um, uh, of the great sculptors, architects, painters, so on, um, uh, of 1550, the first edition, the uh, word rinascita in Italian means rebirth. We use the French term only because in 1855, a French historian, Jules Michelet, in a monumental history of, of France, uh, talked about the Renaissance in France. And of course, he used the French term Renaissance because he was writing in French. And then that is the one that stuck. But indeed, the idea of Renaissance was very much alive, well, and to some extent born during the period of the, um, uh, of the Italian Renaissance itself. Okay. And this episode is obviously about the Italian Renaissance, but just so I have some date ranges in my in my head, when is the approximately when uh, the a French Renaissance, if there if there is, scholars believe there was one, when was that considered to be? It would be somewhat later, following the French invasions of Italy in 1494. There were some few elements before, but it was really uh, more of a 16th century uh, phenomenon than a 15th century phenomenon. Okay. And so there were some contemporaries in Italy in this, and I believe you said the 14th, the 16th century, that really had the awareness. They 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 believed that they were uh, they were in a Renaissance period. They were 
they were um, trying to recreate certain things from from the past that they valued. Very, very much so. Uh, we see it at the beginning. I really begin my discussion of the Italian Renaissance with Petrarch, who died in 1374. So from the middle of the 14th century, there is a sense that the um, way that Petrarch and those who admired and followed Petrarch looked at the world had much more in common with the ancient uh, Romans uh, than with their immediate predecessors, um, the Middle Ages. So there was a sense of moving beyond the Middle Ages into a period that they identified as far more dynamic and which spoke to them far more. And you can understand why. In fact, the Italian Renaissance also invented the term medium or middle age when uh, 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 Bruni in his history of Florence talked about this time as a kind of trough between the peaks of ancient, uh, the ancient world and, um, and his own time in Florence. So there was a sense very much that um, the, uh, 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 the ancient world provided a kind of guidance and gave the tools to allow contemporaries of Petrarch and the, those in the next century to really recover antiquity and the instruments to apply those, uh, those, those messages uh, to their own experiences, solve their own problems to some extent. Despite the fact, and this is something we can talk about in more detail if you like, um, that there was the main problem that those that the uh, Italian Renaissance in the early years admired most, men like Marcus Tullius Cicero, were pagans. So how do you overcome the, uh, the problem of, uh, of, of paganism when you live in a world in which revealed Christianity is the fundamental principle? And the reason I begin the Renaissance with Petrarch is to Petrarch, to some extent, solve that problem. And he allowed those that followed in subsequent generations to then address classical antiquity on its own terms, as opposed to being forced to evaluate it through a Christian lens only, seeing the past then as something imperfect because it um, uh, uh, was before the Christian dispensation. Where in Italy do you believe that the Renaissance began? Well, the interesting thing is that it really began, I suggest, with a group of people uh, Petrarch and his close associates like uh, Giovanni Boccaccio and, uh, and others. And Petrarch was from a Florentine family, but his father had been exiled, in fact, in the same prescriptions that exiled Dante from the, uh, from the city. So he was always a wanderer. He moved around uh, Europe, particularly Italy, but elsewhere, uh, including the south of France, where he had a small villa at Vaucluse. Um, he then carried what he was and who he was with him. So it was very difficult for people like Petrarch to put down institutional or even cultural roots. So it really took his followers, including Giovanni Boccaccio and uh, a man named Coluccio Salutati, who became chancellor of Florence, to um, habilitate his ideas in the city of Florence. And it worked perfectly well. It was an ideal marriage of ideas and place because Florence was an exploding city of great wealth. It was a city of social mobility where success in business could lead to um, uh, uh, rising in social status. A place that was a republic allowed for people uh, who were not well-born to achieve the highest offices in the state. 
a place where um, the practical elements of self-knowledge and the practical elements of statecraft and uh, uh, mercantile activity and uh, self-creation all work very well. So although the ideas first began in the mind of individuals who had no deep roots uh, in, um, uh, in, in a city, although they had some traditional ones, ultimately they came to fruition in Florence. And that is why Florence can be called quite legitimately the cradle of the Renaissance, where these ideas could germinate and become the active ideology of the dominant social, political, and economic classes, because it suited their needs, it fulfilled their ambitions and overcame so many of the restrictions that they had to face during the Middle Ages, such as the uh, proscription uh, against usury. These people were bankers, so they engaged in lending money at interest. So they needed something to overcome that. And the idea of using their wealth for the well-being of the community was something that superseded the uh, Old Testament injunctions against taking money at interest, as an example. Certain um, inventions probably probably was not about recreating the past, but to, but creating something new. Do you circumscribe the Renaissance to strictly art, or do you go beyond art? And if you go beyond art, um, can can you expand on that? Sure, it goes well beyond art. Art, to some extent, is a manifestation of a set of ideas, and. Petrarch, in giving validity to human experience on earth and the desire to know yourself and consequently know others, needed a vocabulary to work with. The obvious one was words, and Petrarch was obsessed with words, and he talked about how words are the index of the soul, and the soul can have no dignity unless words have dignity, and how you can use words to lead people towards the good, the true, and the just. But that's only part of it. You need a vocabulary to externalize experience. How do I know that you are seeing the same uh, landscape that I am seeing as we stand on a hilltop together? I don't. We need a vocabulary that is uniform, that allows us to externalize experience, to reproduce what our respective eyes are seeing. And that's why they invented linear perspective, to put objects and people in the context of space correctly. They invented um, portraiture and correct physiognomy so that when you see somebody in the street, you know who they are. And when you see a picture of someone, you can then identify that person the next time you see them on a street corner. Um, correct anatomy. The human body was no longer something to be ashamed of because of the sin of Adam and Eve. It was something to glorify as God's greatest creation and something as a thing of beauty itself, as in classical antiquity. And it could go on. Every aspect of experience was changed through this uh, perspective of using uh, human experience and human values and human vocabularies in order to create a world that was accessible, that was creative, and to that would allow for the fulfillment of individual ambition and talent. So it goes well beyond painting. Painting is a symptom. It's really this sense of the recovery of the self-confidence of the individual and the belief that human beings themselves can create 
that is the um, uh, that is the first cause. That that linear. Can you can you go back to that term you gave with three examples? What was the linear example that you provided? Linear perspective. Linear perspective, which is actually by the time we reached Leon Battista Alberti um, in uh, Della Pittura, he turned into a kind of mathematical formula. Uh, the, what we were taught in, in elementary school about railway tracks and vanishing points uh, in order to create the relationship of objects in space. Well, Alberti was working with um, ideas that had, uh, that had generated a, uh, a generation before, with, uh, with Nuroleski and Donatello, working with the same set of ideas about how do you create reality? How do you create a three-dimensional image on a two-dimensional plane, like a panel or a wall. And they found a mechanism that could actually do that. And so in, in doing that, they created their own reality. And that reality resonated amongst all of the observers because it was the observer's reality as well. It's how they saw the world. It's the way our minds and eyes function. So it becomes an extremely important element in the creation of a sort of idealized uh, concept of human creation. The Middle Ages followed Augustine and Creatura non potes creare, as he wrote in Latin, that human beings, because they are creatures of God, cannot create. Only God creates, and we're just instruments in God's hands. So medieval uh, artists and architects seldom signed their work because they were merely God's instruments. Now, artists are famous. They become superstars because they of their ability to create. And it's not an accident that by the time we reach Vasari and others in the middle of the 16th century, that um, men like Michelangelo is called divino, divine, because of his ability to create. It's not that he's an angel, it was anything but, but he could in fact create, which was a divine characteristic. So in the linear perspective example, that's more mathematical, you're saying? It is mathematical simply because the way we see the world is in terms of mathematical projections. So uh, if you look at the distance between um, uh, you know, your view out the window and the building across, you could determine exactly how far that is and how much smaller the building appears to be simply by the use of, uh, of, of uh, mathematical perspective. And it is a recreation of reality, absolutely. It's a tool. You mentioned Cicero earlier, and he lived prior to Christianity arriving in, in Rome. What was the role of Christianity in the Italian Renaissance? That, too, renders a complicated question. Um, when Petrarch decided that men like Cicero, who was murdered by Mark Antony's thugs in 43 BC, was a good man, and these pagans who had such high thoughts and beautiful words were good men, despite not having the advantage uh, of the Christian dispensation, um, that gap between the Middle Ages and uh, the Renaissance really was uh, 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 was bridged. So a man like Cicero um, was good because he was a good person. He can provide advice on ethics, on behavior, on how to speak and influence people to do good things on earth. 
He doesn't help at all getting to heaven. There's no advantage whatsoever in reading Cicero and your ultimate salvation. But what there was, was reading Cicero and mastering his rhetoric in order to convince your, your contemporaries to behave in a good way, to elect the right citizens to public office, to choose peace over war or whatever it is that, uh, that you're, you're discussing. Christianity adds a complexity here uh, that, again, Petrarch had, had to address. It's easy to say that um, there was a gap, but the reality was that ancient civilization was a continuum through the Latin language, through the practices of, of the uh, Roman church. Remember, Constantine's Edict of Milan was 313 AD. Rome hadn't fallen. Rome was still operating. The traditions of the Roman Empire were still there. Roman law still was the basis of legal systems and Roman um, uh, principles of architecture and, uh, uh, and literature were all sustained. The difference was that there was a shift in emphasis from the experience of this world, which was so uh, prominent during uh, pagan antiquity, and the expectation and the preparation for the next, which was the essential driver of the Christian Middle Ages. So what role did Christianity play? Well, it played in Italy a kind of peripheral one. First of all, everybody was a Catholic. Uh, if you weren't, you were outside of society. If you were a Jew, if you were a Muslim, if you were an Orthodox Christian after 1054, you were outside. But everybody who participated actively in the society was a Catholic. So the, the assumptions were made that this, there is some truth to this. This is who we are. This is the definition of our values and our, our, uh, our institutions. Um, did, uh, was there any sense of paganism amongst these humanists, those, practice, those practitioners of the ideas of, of Petrarch and others? Not really. You know, they may have play-acted a little bit, but they were essentially all Christians. It was their culture. It's how they defined themselves. It's who they were. So the church initially saw no problem with this um, because the use of rhetoric in sermons, for example, or in religious texts could actually benefit the souls of the, um, of, the, of the faithful. The creation of great art could help those who couldn't read or write and those who could understand the nature of the mystical uh, events of Christian revelation to understand what's going on, who these people were. And there was no major difficulty. The problems only really began to arise when the Protestant Reformation started introducing ideas that challenged Catholicism to the point that Catholics decided they had to put their wagons in a circle and begin to uh, investigate any idea that didn't have a Christian Catholic source. But that's late. That's after the you know, 1520. Before that, there were individuals Certain Dominicans, um, Girolamo Savonarola, the Dominican in Florence, who was uh, finally executed and burned in 1494, in 1498, I should say. Um, but mostly, there was complete comfort in studying pagan antiquity and Christian belief, but there was no sense that they were mutually exclusive. In fact, Cicero, who wrote a letter to the shade of Cicero, to the ghost of, uh, of Marcus Tullius Cicero, um, Answered it, saying, "You know, in the year of of uh, that Lord whom you never knew, you never knew, the assumption was among so many Italian Renaissance scholars 
that had men like Cicero had access to the Christian message, they'd have converted, they'd have become Christians. And there was a strong uh, tradition of, of mythology and legend that saw the conversion of the Emperor Augustus, for example, which is nonsense, never happened. But the belief was that these were good people, that the poet Virgil, uh, because of the fourth eclogue, actually, uh, like the Old Testament prophets, foretold the coming of Christ. So there isn't any real distinction until the first decades of the 16th century, that it was perfectly easy to be um, a Catholic and a humanist. And indeed, the church embraced so many of these ideas. Walk into the uh, apostolic palace of the Vatican to this day. You see Raphael's paintings in the Stanze of, of Raphael. You see um, Michelangelo's painting, which are highly uh, inspired by pagan models and ideas that come from humanism and antiquity. But does that mean that the painters in any way doubted the Christian message? Not at all. Is there any indication that the church was uncomfortable with these ideas? Not until the first decades of the 16th century. That's why they're painted on the walls of the Pope's house. So it's a complicated issue, and we have to place it in time in order to really explain how this, these sets of ideas developed, converged, and then diverged, um, uh, driven by circumstances, really outside the Italian Renaissance cultural tradition itself. What degree do you think, so far we've spoken about different writers and artists, so what, what degree do you think patrons drove the, the Renaissance? You, met, you mentioned the Catholic Church, um, mm -hmm. s some of Raphael's work there, Michelangelo um, was, was hired, uh, my understanding, by, by I think several uh, different popes in his, in his, yeah. in his yeah. life and did, did, did work. Yeah. There would have been different families that were, were patrons. To what degree were patrons driving the Renaissance? Huge, huge. Um, it has to do with the way that art was produced. The 19th century model of the uh, Garrett-bred artist creating great art and oblivious or uninterested in whether that art would sell is, has nothing to do with the Renaissance at all. Virtually every significant Renaissance art object was the result of a commission. Somebody who drew up a contract with that artist or architect or sculptor and said, this is what I want, and often went into great detail saying, this is exactly what I want, and you have to fulfill these, uh, these obligations. And if you read these contracts, especially from clever, uh, uh, educated, and uh, cultivated people like Isabella d'Este to, um, uh, to painters like Peruccino, you can see how detailed these things become. The patrons demanded an art that reflected the dominant dynamic culture of their own times. All art, to some extent, is propaganda. It is propaganda of a set of ideas that animate the world in which we live. So the patrons wanted to reflect their own level of, of uh, sophistication, their own knowledge, their own education, their wealth, um, their uh, social mobility. All of these things had to be uh, included in these art objects or these buildings. So patrons played a huge role, and the contracts that drove so many of the greatest uh, paintings of the Italian Renaissance are very much determined by the patron and what the patron wanted. 
the Catholic Church is a classic example. You couldn't just let an artist loose because what if they're heretical ideas? What if they're principles that challenge the idea of a universal and singular Catholic Church? You couldn't do it. So the contract made sure that the artist conformed and that the ideas were orthodox. And in terms of secular art, art was created that met the needs of the patron. So when you look at families like the Medici, um, who are great patrons of art, Isabella d'Este and Mantova, great patroness of, uh, of, of art, and any number of, uh, of uh, popes and cardinals, what you've got is you've got a reflection of the patron's interest delivered by the genius of the artist. Constantinople fell in 1453. Did that event affect the the Italian Renaissance period at all? And if so, how? Yeah, sure. Um, Not as much as a lot of people thought that it did, um, especially in the 19th century. The fall of Constantinople in May of 1453 to the Turks um, took place in the middle of the 15th century. Greek had already been rediscovered. Men like Leonardo Bruni, who also became Chancellor of Florence, had already translated um, a number of Greek uh, texts into Latin so that they were available. Cosimo de' Medici had already uh, commissioned works um, uh, to be of uh, Plato to be translated from the Greek by uh, by scholars um, such as you know, Marsilio Ficino and others. In other words, the process had already begun, and the process had begun in part because of the fear of the Turks, the uh, Council of Florence of 1439 which was to heal the schism between the Orthodox and Latin churches in order to protect the city from the Turks, which was clearly in great danger, um, resulted in the emperor of Constantinople, his court, um, the patriarch, um, um, a dozen or so metropolitans or bishops coming to Florence, and they brought their libraries with them. And some of these scholars, like Cardinal Bessarion, stayed, and he uh, left his wonderful collection of Greek manuscripts to the uh, Marciana, the library of St. Mark in Venice. So all of this made an interest in Greek culture and Greek civilization much, much uh, earlier than 1453. There was a great fear that the destruction of the libraries of Constantinople would result in the loss of works, and that certainly happened. But so much of the important work of antiquity, of Greek antiquity, had already reached the West. So did it have an effect? Sure it did. Did it have an effect that wasn't only cultural, that was economic and political? Yeah. It meant that the virtual monopoly that the Italians had in trade through Constantinople and the Eastern Mediterranean, all of that was now now gone because the Turks didn't care what kind of infidel you were. You had to pay their taxes. And it meant that... um, the wealth of Italy began to decline. So it had effects that way. But did it change the nature of the Renaissance, uh, the culture of the Renaissance? Not really. The city of Florence, and, and you brought brought it up earlier, um, is proverbial when talking about the Italian Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Is there another region or two you want to mention in in the Italian peninsula that you believe was really involved in the Italian Renaissance. And can you share uh, some distinctions or differences maybe about how that 
region approach to the the, the re- Renaissance, almost like making their own mark, their own unique mark in the period? Sure, sure. Um, and this is a really important issue because the Italian Renaissance was not monolithic. It wasn't just Florence. Florence, in fact, was unusual because it was a republic that allowed for social mobility and uh, a very wide participation of citizens in, in government and the creation of enormous wealth through um, the selling of woolen cloth and banking. But other centers were incredibly important. And one of my favorite is, is, uh, is Mantua. Um, the reason there, and Mantua serves as a kind of symbol for other courtly uh, uh, societies ruled by a prince who often was a professional military commander at the same time. So you could make the same argument about Ferrara and two degrees in Milan. And the thing about Mantova is that the, the Gonzagas, who ruled the city from the uh, from 1328, I think, um, stole, murdered the previous rulers and took the throne. They uh, needed to justify their rule and celebrate who they were through the patronage of of art, to celebrate their victories and to make them competitors with other centers so that their fame, that Italian sense of reputazione, of fama, um, would be widely known. I've often argued that uh, the patronage of art in these princely societies was war by other means. It was the paying huge fees to the greatest architects, the greatest painters, the greatest sculptors, to come and work at court in order to add to the fame and celebration of the ruling family and the prince. So if you think of Mantua and uh, Andrea Mantegna, who in the um, middle of the 15th century painted the so-called Camera degli Sposi, the um, room in the uh, uh, ducal palace, um, then, well, Marcus's palace then, uh, that celebrates the family of Ludovico Gonzaga. And this is so different from Florence. It is a celebration of a prince. And this created its own artistic and cultural frame of reference. If we look at Rome, the Renaissance came late to Rome. And the reason had to do with the Babylonian captivity, the fact that papacy was in Avignon until 1377. Then in 1378, it split into two with one pope in Avignon and one pope in Rome until uh, until 14, um, uh, 1417. So it was only in 1420 that a united papacy returned to Rome. But then the popes had to face the reality that Rome had become a kind of derelict city surrounded by a malarial swamp. Its its grandeur, its reputation, the idea of Rome had to be recreated. And how do you do it? By building, building great monuments, by having artists decorate the city so that it could compete with Florence and Venice and Mantova um, as a center of art and culture. And it did, especially after the middle of the 15th century and the pontificate of, uh, of Nicholas V, there was an explosion of papal patronage in order to glorify the church, to glorify the pope, to glorify the apostolic succession from St. Peter and uh, the role of the pope as Christ vicar on earth. As I said, all art is propaganda in some ways, and the propaganda in Rome is very, very, very obvious. But it also resulted in some of the greatest art objects ever created by Western civilization, like the Stanze of Raphael and Michelangelo's Vault and the Sistine and um, uh, so many other examples in the uh, in the Eternal City. 
And where's Montala in Italy today? Uh, it's in it's it's uh, uh, it's in Lombardy, and it's a relatively small. It's not that far from Bologna, and uh, not that far from from Milan, but it's closer to Bologna. And it's um, uh, on the River Mincio, so it's sort of in the middle of it's of an important set of trade routes that allowed the dukes to. Um, well, dukes after the middle of the 16th century, but uh, the dukes to make money, uh, but also to have a place of protection. And one of the reasons that you wanted to have a great reputation was to have a military reputation, but also a reputation as being a cultural entity, because you were always under threat from your neighbors. Machiavelli reminds us that the state exists to expand at the expense of its neighbors. So you need protection of all kinds. And as we have learned, propaganda is a terrific protection. It's a wonderful way of binding people to their ruler, binding people to their place, and warning others that the money spent on art could easily be spent on war. So, you know, treat us, treat us well. An, an artist. So there are uh, proverbial artists and uh, some of them were mentioned in this in this conversation. What's what's an artist you want to uh, mention for everybody that perhaps doesn't get mentioned uh, enough, in your opinion, uh, when talking about the Italian Renaissance? It's easy to rhapsodize about Raphael or uh, or Michelangelo, but the the artist that I would discuss is Piero della Francesca. Piero, born in the tiny town of San Sepolcro, um, created. Uh, 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 the kind of art that really reflects so many of the values that we're discussing. He was trained as a mathematician, and he then used linear perspective in the most incredibly precise and, and creative ways. You, in fact, can determine the time of day in which a painting is placed by the length of shadows, because they're exactly right. His uh, desire to recreate reality then takes on a really, really powerful narrative and if you look at his great work, um, the greatest probably being The Legend of the True Cross in, um, uh, uh, in uh, 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 um, the Church of San Francesco uh, in, uh, in Arezzo, you can see an amazing collection of, of images taken from uh, a book called The Golden Legend um, about the story of the True Cross from the tree uh, in Eden, uh, that resulted in the fall of man to uh, the same tree being used then to create the cross in which Christ is, is crucified. And then subsequently, its discovery by Constantine's mother, St. Helena, who then brings it, to, uh, brings it to Rome. The painting is amazing simply because of not just the perspective, but his ability to accentuate events and movement and a, and a dynamic the creation of individual characters coming together and, and, and interacting without ever losing that sense of the wonder in the narrative. Piero della Francesca is a truly, truly great painter, and he was so committed to um, mathematics and geometry that he wrote at least three treatises on mathematics and geometry. And he uh, uh, realized that Without geometry and mathematics, it's very difficult to recreate the world as we see it. Everybody liked to quote what was above the gates of Plato's Academy. Let none 
ignorant of geometry enter here. In other words, if you want to know absolute truth and perfection, you have to understand geometry because geometry is always correct. It is an absolute truth. The square on the hypotenuse will always be equal to the square on the other two sides, regardless who you are, where you are, when you are. It's, it's an absolute truth. So these things were then paralleled in the belief in religion because they believed religion to be an absolute truth as well. And so geometry becomes, to some extent, the um, language of God. And that's reflected in architecture with architects like, uh, like um, uh, uh, Bramante, but especially Brunelleschi, and in painting, where you can really see God's plan for man being un un unfolded using the vocabulary of geometry. So Piero della Francesca is somebody I recommend everybody get to know because he really will reward your, um, uh, uh, your studies. Uh, Petrarch, Dante were, were mentioned earlier. What, what's a writer that you feel um, doesn't get enough airtime around this topic? Well, Petrarch, of course, gets a lot. I mean, having invented the sonnet sequence and legitimizing uh, erotic love, all of these things. But the, uh, the writer that doesn't get the credit that he deserves, I think, is Bolasetti Castiglione, who um, uh, wrote a book called uh, Il Libro del Cortigiano, The Book of the Courtier. And it was first printed in 1527, I think, and he died in 1528. But it reflects over four nights a discussion in the boudoir of the Duchess of, uh, of Urbino and discusses the nature of, in theory, what makes the perfect courtier, court gentleman, and then book three, the perfect court lady. It is... On the surface, a discussion of manners and behavior and the relationship of power to action and so on. But it's more than that. It has to do with that basic principle that begins with Petrarch. And in many ways, I think it's the fulfillment of what Petrarch starts to write. And that is we um, all have the ability to create ourselves. Something that then you run with when you think of the uh, romantic movement and even the world in which we live. When you wake up in the morning and you decide what you're going to wear, whether you're going to shave, if you're going to put on makeup, um, you decide who you are and the face that you're going to present to others. And you can make that person anyone. And what's more, you don't have to be one person. You One day, uh, no, a woman wakes up and looks at the mirror and decides what to wear. Is she going to be Lucrezia Borgia or is she going to be Mother Teresa? Same woman. It just depends on how she dresses, how she puts on makeup, how she acts, demeanor, and all of these things. So I think it's so important because not only is it an insight into the mind of the high Renaissance, it's also the fulfillment of that, I, that idea that we are the creatures that we create ourselves to be. We all put on faces to meet the faces that we meet. And this is, to some extent, I think, the great gift and the... Um, uh, the heritage of the Italian Renaissance, the idea of the uh, self-actualized individual able to create him or herself according to certain models and images, to be sure, but ultimately creating their lives as a work of art. So the last assignment I give my students in my Renaissance culture course is that they have to go out and then turn their lives into works of art over the next 60 or 70 years. And that, I think, is really the intention of the humanism of the Italian Renaissance. 
to give us the mechanisms and the vocabulary to all of us as individuals turn our lives into works of art, but always in the context of a community because a work of art that is locked away in a cellar ceases to some extent to have any resonance. We all live in a community, and so it's the reaction of others that matter as much as our own intentions for ourselves. So that's why I would say Castiglione's Book of the Courtier is one of the great books of the um, Italian Renaissance. The last question in this series of people uh, questions that you're, you encourage uh, uh, listeners to, to look into. Um, what is a scientist that you want to mention in this in this period or or an invention and inventions probably tied to a scientist or an inventor or or inventors but is there is there a scientist or an invention that comes to mind that's very noteworthy in this period that you want to mention um historians of science in particular but lots of others believe the renaissance was actually a backward step in the history of science from the middle ages the middle ages uh, engaged in scientific observation because they wanted to understand God plans, God's plan for man. And they be- believed that the book of nature, as Leonardo da Vinci called it, was the best way of doing that. The Renaissance looked back to antiquity. They saw as sources books written during the ancient world. So their knowledge of the world was determined by Pliny's natural history. Their sense of geography was determined by Strabo, as opposed to actually going out and doing this stuff. That happened later. So when we look at the recovery of antiquity, we can see that a bunch of ideas interposed between the modern concept of science as observed phenomena. Um, And so you get into, you get weird ideas. You get ideas that are neoplatonic about the uh, microcosm and macrocosm, that human beings are microcosms of the universe, that um, there is a, 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 a... a relationship between stones and the stars and astrology and all of this stuff, which is, of course, nonsense. But the ancients believed it, so they ran with it. There were a few, though, who observed, and, of course, the greatest of these, uh, and someone who consequently wasn't really a humanist, never really learned Latin, although he tried to teach himself, was Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo read the Book of Nature, as he said, and he tried to observe and use his observation in order to create So he observed birds, especially bats, and he created his flying machines. They didn't fly because human beings aren't bats. But nevertheless, it's a result of observation. And so many of his machines wouldn't work, but they're the result of the beginning of scientific uh, uh, progress through observation. But then you've got others. Nicholas Copernicus, who was a Pole, but who studied at the University of Padua in in northern Italy, the Veneto, and who... um, Uh, did much of his writing in in Italy. When he came out with um, uh, 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 the movement of the celestial bodies in 1543, he used mathematics and observation in order to determine that the sun was the center of the universe and the earth moved around it. So he was the ultimate scientist because he trusted his own observations even above the teachings of the church, despite the fact that he was ordained a priest. And he, in many ways, created the platform in which Galileo would, would subsequently build, build. The other one I'd mention is, uh, is Vesalius. Now, Vesalius wasn't an Italian either. He was a, a Fleming from the Low Countries. But when he created uh, a, a De Humanis uh, Corporis, uh, um, he created a, um, a book of human anatomy. 
based on observation that was so correct, it really wasn't uh, superseded until the 19th century. He too trusted his observation. And this is what all of this is leading to. Yeah, a lot of nonsense was recovered because of the belief in the authority of the ancient world. An awful lot of weird stuff, Neoplatonic ideas, connections with the Egyptian god Thoth and all this stuff. It's nonsense. It's interesting nonsense, but it's nonsense. But the important thing is the essence of Renaissance humanism itself. That is to trust the validity of human experience and to give us the mechanism to share that with others. So if you're a scientist, if you're a botanist and you're looking at a plant, you're able then to trust your experience to the point that you will then make an engraving of that plant. You will then print it and put it in a book so that others can test to see whether they have the same plant and whether in fact it's right. The scientific method could only be possible if you believed in the validity and the accuracy uh, of human observation by allowing human experience to be the essential instrument for the understanding and the interpretation of the natural world. So in so many ways, science did move backwards in terms of actual stuff because of the nonsense that crept in. But in terms of what really mattered, how the individual can understand nature through observation and then test those observations through the research of others, this is fundamental, and this is the essence of humanism that goes right back to Petrarch. Human actualized experience, what you see and do, has validity. And you believe it to be true, but you have to interpret it to others for them to make an assessment as well. And that is the basis of scientific method. A closing question, Ken. At the start of the episode, you mentioned uh, 14th to 16th centuries for the Italian Renaissance period. Why do you mark it in the 16th uh, century that you believe it ended? I think it's a, it's a combination of things that all coalesced. Um, the independence and freedom of the Italian peninsula was lost when the French crossed the Alps and in 1494. And then Italy subsequently became the battlefield of Europe. So the peace and the security that the Alps and water on three sides provided the Italian peninsula up to that point was lost. So security is important for art. It's very important to know that you're going to be able to pay your, uh, uh, your sculptor or your architect. That's one thing. But I think a much greater danger was the uh, response to the Protestant Reformation. The belief that Luther and Luther's uh, 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 later continuators like Calvin challenged the idea of a single universal church, many people attributed to this very idea of allowing individuals to make judgments about the nature of the universe and to uh, recognize and celebrating individual human experience. So Luther and Calvin talked about a personal relationship with God. You didn't have to go through priests in the church you could go directly to Jesus or to God. Well, to some extent, you can see this as an extension of some of the ideas that begin with Petrarch, that we are in control of our own lives. So if we're in control of our lives on earth, why aren't we in control of our lives in, uh, for our salvation? So the church then responded very, very critically and began to shut down the very instruments that had created the Italian Renaissance. 
1542 saw the, the creation of the Roman Inquisition. Well, every diocese had an Inquisition to see if an idea was orthodox or, or, uh, or heretical. But now, after 1542, it was centralized, centralized from Rome to decide what was uh, to be accepted and what was to be branded as false and consequently suppressed. So that had a huge chilling effect on the uh, world because the penalties were terrible. Then comes the index of prohibited uh, 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 books beginning in 1564. The index of prohibited books determined again from Rome a committee of overly zealous cardinals and bishops what you could read and what you could, what ideas you could know and what ideas you could. And as soon as you start putting restrictions on what you can read, what you can think and what you can know, the idea of create, the, create, uh, the creative mind begins to be suppressed. And then finally, it is, I, I think, the uh, creation of an imperial papacy that after the Council of Trent, uh, which ended in 1564, the idea that from Rome, Christ's vicar on earth, the successor to St. Peter, uh, will determine what is true and what is false, what you can believe and what you can't, and to celebrate no longer antiquity for its own sake, but antiquity as a kind of preface to the Christian dispensation, and in particular, Christ's charge to St. Peter and the creation of the, uh, of the Catholic Church. All of this had an incredibly uh, a, a restrictive uh, effect on the, the creative mind of the Italian peninsula. The workshops were still there. The talent was still there. Art was still being produced. Great buildings were being produced. The imperial papacy invented the Baroque to some extent. But that sense of pushing the envelope that constitutes my definition of the Italian Renaissance, of trying to define what it is to be human on earth in our community, that was largely, largely suppressed. And that is why I really end the Italian Renaissance in the last decades of the 16th century, when the monuments of popes uh, like Sixtus V uh, talked about um, repurposing the city of Rome itself, but the monuments of antiquity as Christian monuments. The obelisks he set up again but he set them up not to make the emperor the, the intermediary between heaven and earth, but to make the pope intermediary between heaven and earth in a new world that is determined by Catholic orthodoxy, any challenge to which would be met with the most severe penalties immediately. That's why I ended in the 16th century. Closing question for the official part of our conversation, Ken. Um, when it comes to in influencing other areas, it's probably easy to say, yeah, it influenced people travel around, right? But is there, when you've gone through the evidence, is there one or two spots, and I, I don't even want to circumscribe it to Europe, but obviously, please mention it if it's in Europe, that's perfectly fine, that you believe that because the Italian Renaissance occurred, it heavily influenced a period in somewhere else other than the Italian Renaissance other than the Italian peninsula after that? Yeah, I think um, the period of classicism in the uh, uh, late 17th and 18th century is to some extent an attempt to recover that element of, um, of, of the classical world, of the models. And 
it, it worked really very well because when you think of events like the French Revolution, you can see how the classicism of the 18th century can be repurposed by painters like Jacques-Louis David, who's a member of the Committee of Public Safety, for heaven's sakes, um, into the uh, patriotic and republican um, propaganda in works like the, uh, 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 the Oath of the Horatii and others. The fact that people walked around in classical clothing, that um, some um, of the... Uh, French Republican officers actually wore togas in order to try and recreate what they saw as a virtuous world, the virtuous world of the Italian, of the, uh, of the ancient Roman uh, Republic, to allow virtue to operate. And again, as art is propaganda, art served this extremely well. So it did have an enormous influence. And then it became institutionalized in the Beaux-Arts style, that lasted really up until the First World War in art schools around the entire world, reproducing what the ICs, correct anatomy, portraiture. You know, look at a painting by Angra, and you can almost see Italian painting. And in fact, he painted Italian painters like Raphael uh, in, uh, in, in instances of Leonardo da Vinci. So it, it is there, and it's part of our own belief structure. Those of us who believe that we're in control of our own destiny and that what we do on earth matters are subscribing to the principles of the Italian Renaissance, beginning with Petrarch. And as such, I think it's very much still alive, even though visually and architecturally, um, it's not as visible, but it's still there in another way, in some ways carried to its logical extension, that the only reality now is the mind and vision of the artist. We've lost the sense of community but at the same time, there is a sense of transcendent and almost numinous power that the artist has that takes us right back to what Vasari was saying in the lives of the artists, saying that men like Michelangelo and even Raphael, although it was a Florentine, uh, were divine. And so consequently, we should follow their models. And that's what we do, I think, in the, uh, uh, the world of celebrity art and to some extent, even the world of celebrities, where performance art... I mean, what have the Kardashians ever done? What, what, what value do they have to anybody except through performance art? That's what they're doing. And people then uh, subscribe to this and they see it as a model as perhaps we're following. So you as an influencer now um, fall into this category as well, Andrew. So um, think of yourself as a creator of the style and the tradition of the Italian Renaissance. Uh, I didn't mention... Uh this at the start of the episode, but you're in your home in Toronto. I'm in my, yes. my condo in, in, in Toronto. And I feel like while we're, uh, and, and we're about, we've talked about this before. We're probably six to 10 blocks away and we're doing a webinar. Right. But I, I think while we were chatting, Ken, um, the sun finally came out. So I think it stopped raining. Are, are you going to, are you going to go for a walk after this? I think that would be a very good thing. And <laughs> what I think it is, is that all of the divine powers are smiling on this conversation. Ah. Uh, Love it. Okay. Thank you for coming on the show, Ken. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. And a pleasure speaking with you, Andrew. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody. The couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Bartlett wrote, The Renaissance in Italy, A History and A Short History of the Italian Renaissance. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Ken and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. 
Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.